Well, good morning, everyone. So, um, <clears throat> I have a very willing volunteer to read the scriptures with me. Jeremy? Yes. So, Jeremy has a very <clears throat> good haircut this morning. Jeremy, haven't you? You've got your money's worth? I always got a haircut. I can't zoom in my microphone. Yep. You, know, you know, I always used to love me and... For haircut, it's like it's different from me actually, guys. I recognize my, my hair. It's going like headshot to me, like Jesus loved me. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's read this together. So if we find page 1183 in the Bibles on the seats, you'll find James chapter 4, and we're reading from verse 1 to 12. So, um, Jeremy, I'll help you. Okay, we'll do it together. Yeah. Are you ready? Yep. Are you ready with the Bible? What the case fight and quarrels, and quarrels around you don't they come from your des- desires that battle with you in you. You want something but don't get it. You kill and cover, but you cannot have whatever you want. You are quarrel and fight. Do not have because of you asking God. When you ask God, do not receive because you ask wrong motives. motives. Spend. Well, you may spend what you get, get on your pleasures. pleasures, and you adulterous, adulterous people do not, you know, friendship with, with the, 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 the world. world is hatred. hatred towards God. Anyone can choose the a friend of God of the world of, uh, of becomes enemies to God, you might think scripture says a season spirit he calls live in us enemies intensely but he keeps us more grace. Okay. I'll do the rest now. Okay, Jeremy? Yeah, Thank you very it. much. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you. Yeah, give him a clap. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, 
you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. So I feel like this talk is something of a footnote to David's talk last Sunday. If you remember, he left us with the encouragement that we should learn to love the Holy Spirit, which I think is a very beautiful invitation. So the first thing is a word on holiness. What is holiness? What does being holy and leading a holy life actually mean? Does it mean being a perfect in virtue and somebody who never does wrong? Well, that's what people often think it means. But the good news is that it doesn't mean that. Because if it did mean that, trying to be holy would lead only to spiritual pride or absolutely despair. You would either be puffed up or you'd give up. But the good news is that the holy life, as shown us in the Bible, does mean actually something else. It means being set apart for God. There's a hint in James that this kind of holiness, what holiness really means, is more attainable. It's more doable. And I'm going to come back to that as James shows us how we might find a better way. So, James 4, 1 to 12. I've called this talk the humility that leads to holiness. It's a picture of two kinds of heart. As usual, James starts with the way we behave. And then he shows us that it is the state of our hearts that produce the behavior. So, looking at verses 1 to 3... What do we see there? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It's our lusts and our desires, he says, like a flaming furnace. If you picture the old steam engines where they had the stevedores who would be shoveling the coal into the furnace... You'd have that blazing fire going on that would, would, would produce the steam that would drive this powerful engine forward. Or a ship, one of those great old ships which had those huge, those enormous engines deep, deep down. Well, that's what our desires are like. They're deep, deep down in our personalities. And James is telling us that when our behaviors, which are right on the surface, and everybody sees them, are to say behaviors that lead to fights, and selfishness, it's because these desires of ours, deep down, are selfish ones. Then he asks, what direction do they lead us in? And he really simplifies it. He basically says they either lead us towards the world, or they lead us towards the Lord. And so when he describes somebody who is a friend of the world... He calls them an adulterer or an adulteress. And he's not talking about sexual sin. He's talking about something very different. 
it includes sexual sin, but it's a much bigger thing altogether. And it's the same thing that he talks about over and over again, or God rather, talks about over and over again through his prophets in the Old Testament. It's when Israel left him and went after other gods, other kinds of life, other kinds of satisfactions. It's the word idolatry. It's idolatry is what he's talking about. So for Israel, that was adopting the standards and practices of the nations who were living in Canaan when they moved into Canaan. And if you look in Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3, it talks in great detail about how God feels when Israel does that. And it's a lesson for us about how our God feels when we put something in his place. So what's idolatry today? It doesn't mean that you have a little wooden idol in the corner of your bedroom that you kowtow to every morning and every evening. Now, there are some cultures and there are some religions that still do that. But it's something much, much more practical and much more real. What adultery really means is relying on something other than God for the things that only God can give us. So, if we rely on something other than God for our security or our comfort or our purpose in life or our identity, that is idolatry. Let that sink in for a moment. That means that idolatry is the most common sin in the world and it's the most common sin in the church. You think about the things that we actually rely upon. Do we feel secure because we have a comfortable bank balance or because we have a regular benefits check or because we have a solid pension or a nice house? Or is it that we feel important because we have a good job, or we're in a training and aspiring to have a good career. And that's where our sense of significance comes from. Or is the thing that we think about all the time our possessions or our food? All of these things are things that God says, these are okay in their place, they're all right. But if they take my place, then they're idolatry. Jesus even went as far as to say that if we put family, the love of wives and husbands, the love we have for our children, which are most beautiful things, if we put those in Jesus' place, that's idolatry. It's no wonder, is it, that the first commandment of all is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So in the shalt not of the Old Testament... Idolatry was number one. Thou shalt not make an idol. And in the shalls that Jesus gave us, you shall and you shall, the two verses he gave us that summarizes, in his words, all of the law and the prophets, the first one is, what is it? Go ahead. Thank you, Nazim. 
The shall is about loving God. It's about a positive thing. So, what James summarizes when he's talking about idolatry is he calls it being a friend of the world rather than being a friend of God. So that's that's where our hearts, the direction of our hearts is what James is talking about. And if our hearts directed towards the world rather than towards God, then we're going to see some of these awful behaviors. So, if we look at verses 5 to 10 in James's exhortation, I won't call it quite good news. <laughs> He's a bit heavy, isn't he? This is what we can do about it. I'll come back to this in a moment. But you'll see in verses 11 and 25, 11, 11 and 12, you'll show the outcome of being a person with that heart. He goes back again to this question of the heart. And he says that a person with an arrogant heart is a person who thinks they're better than anybody else. You end up speaking badly about other people. James says, don't do it. If you do, you are even judging the law. That is the royal law, the one that you love your neighbor as yourself. You're putting yourself above the royal law, and you're wielding it like a sword. Who do you think you are, James says? There's only one person who is the judge, and only he is worthy to wield the sword of judgment because only he first died to save us so that he's worthy to judge us. It's sobering, isn't it? This whole passage is pretty sobering. James doesn't take any prisoners, does he? <laughs> he's, a very, he's a very shrewd and very blunt observer of behavior. So why does he get so heavy about these behaviors that come from the heart? If we look at verses 8 and 9, we can see some of the answers there. He says that we, should need, we, we need to deal with those behaviors from the heart. What is the issue there? What's the issue that he's emphasizing so strongly? He's issuing, the issue is the nature of the human heart. What it is about the human heart that makes it prone to do all these things. And what can we do about it? So he's not talking about that great lump of muscle in your chest that pumps the blood round from the moment you're born to the moment you die. But he's talking about the center of you. Your spirit, your will, the part of you that chooses. That's what the Bible means when it says the heart A few verses from other places in the Bible then about the heart. Proverbs 4, verses 23. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. And in Luke 6, verse 45, Jesus says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's really quite sobering when you read what the Bible says about the human heart. Perhaps that's why James is so heavy about it. Jeremiah, in chapter 17, sorry, chapter 17, verse 9, 
says this. This is a very famous verse. He says, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You get to see why James talks about weeping and wailing and being full of tears when we try and deal with this terrible, terrible issue. What can we do about the human heart? And that's why the sin of idolatry is so universal. On that list that I spoke about, I didn't actually mention the worst one of all. And it's the most common sin in the world. It's the most common sin today, and it's been the most common sin for the entire history of human life on this planet. What do you think that might be? Anybody want to take a guess at what the worst sin of all is? Nazim's on a roll here. Yes, it is pride. Could you put it a different way? The idolatry of self. That's what I've called it, the idolatry of self. It basically means that I will rely on myself. If we think about it, if we put our hands on our hearts and we think about our lives, that's exactly what we do most of the time. We really find it difficult to accept that God says, you must rely on me, beloved. I will look after you. I will keep you safe. I will give you significance. I will be your security. Don't rely on yourself. One of the things that you often hear about when people are talking about what does it mean to be born again is we talk about the throne in our hearts. Who is sitting on the throne? And this is really what the sin of idolatry the sin of the idolatry of the self is really about. Who is sitting on the throne of my heart? And when we're born again, the most extraordinary and wonderful thing happens. Something that we can't do because our hearts are so deceitful is done for us. The Holy Spirit comes, and because Jesus died on the cross, we can have him on the throne of our heart. We can dethrone ourselves, and he can be on the throne himself. He could be sitting on the throne which was designed for him. That's what we're supposed to work by. That's the, that's the life which we're supposed to have. And all of our problems are because we don't rely on that life. We rely on self-life. You see, we believe in ourselves like we breathe. We don't even notice it. It's completely natural, and that's the problem. So the antidote to this deadly, deadly poison of pride is the one that James is talking about all the way through the whole of this book, but this chapter 2. What virtue do you think he might be talking about, which is the antidote to this terrible sin of pride? Humility, indeed. He's talking about humility. You know that's the preeminent Christian virtue. 
you know it was virtually invented by Christians? In the Roman world, humility was not considered a virtue. It was considered a vice. Here's a thought. If you think about the people who were in charge in Roman times, the thing they used to wear was called a toga. Yeah? It was called a toga. Now, a toga is an interesting garment. First of all, you wouldn't put it on yourself. Somebody would put it on for you. You'd have a slave who would put your toga on. Okay? A toga was a very long piece of very expensive cloth. And it was elegantly draped around you at the beginning of the day by your slave. And it finished off by coming over your shoulder and then over your arm. And the thing about it was it was a totally impractical piece of clothing. Completely impractical. If you cast your mind back to when Jesus was talking about leadership and with his disciples who all want to be, wanted to be leaders, he said to them, the rulers of this world lorded over people. And those in authority make other people serve them. But I am not among you as one of them, because the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's the invitation that we have to humility, to be like him, the servant of all. So back to the toga. What is a toga good for? You can't dig the garden in a toga. You can't change a wheel in a toga. In fact, you can't even do the washing up in a toga. If you did, it would fall off. So what's it good for? Well, it's good for standing still and telling other people what to do. And that's the point of it. If you wore a toga, it said to everybody, you're in charge. I'm going to rule it over you. So that's why the toga was the preeminent thing that the Roman rulers all used to wear, because that's what they wanted to tell everybody. I'm going to tell you what to do, so you better listen. And that's why when the Christians started to talk about serving as the epitome of leadership, it was revolutionary. So, moving on then. Let's go back to that throne room in our hearts. Those of us who are born again, which I think probably means all of us here, but if you're not born again and you don't know what I'm talking about in terms of personal experience, you might have heard about it, but if you haven't experienced the transformation that Jesus described as a new birth, then please come and talk to me about it afterwards. But if you have experienced being born again, you'll know that there was a change in your heart at a particular time. It might have been a gradual change. It might have been very, very clear at a very specific point in your life, as it was for me. But you know that something's different and that the Holy Spirit has put the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart. And that's a mystery. What does it mean? Well, it's something which is difficult to explain, but you know it's real. And of course, once the Lord Jesus is on the throne of your heart, everything is rosy in the garden. Nothing ever goes wrong again, does it? Well, there's a few people shaking their heads and smiling. I think that's because you probably experience what I experience, which is something like spiritual musical chairs 
You know that old game? We all jumped off and off the chairs, and sometimes one person was on the chair and somebody else was on the chair. Well, that's what's happening in my heart quite a lot of the time, and I'm sure in yours too. It's the same thing that we're struggling with all the time, which is, are we going to continue to give the Lord lordship in our hearts? Are we going to continue to have the humility to come to him and say, I need your help. I need your help. Are we going to say like Paul did in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's what James says, isn't it? He says the same thing. He puts it slightly differently because James always emphasizes us doing something. He's very much a doing sort of guy, James, as we all know. And he says that we have to humble ourselves. We have to do something. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you, verse 7. And then he says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. So it's submit and resist. So those are doing words. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God. So again, it's something we have to do. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Now you see that despite all of these James's exhortations for us to do things and not to do other things, when it comes to the heart, all we need to do is to be willing. Don't forget what the state of our hearts is. We can't use an instrument which is desperately wicked and so deceitful to change ourselves, nor can we use it to keep ourselves changed. We just have to be willing. And that's where the humility comes in. We have to admit we cannot do it. Lord, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. I have been a Christian for 40 years, and Lord, I can't do it. I can't do it. I started the talk by talking about, um, or referring back to David's excitation to us, encouragement to us to learn to love the Holy Spirit. And that's really where I'm just coming into ground here. I just want to say a few more things, and then we're going to turn to prayer, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us. And then if you are free on Wednesday night, I'm going to do a workshop, which is about how to try this out together and actually to do it. It's all about the how. But as a sort of taster, how do we cultivate this life of constantly asking him to be on the throne and not to rely on ourselves. How do we do that? How do we cultivate a life which is more and more about being in love with God? James implies the answer in verse 4. He says, don't be a friend of the world. Be a friend of God instead. So I'm going to say something which might be a little surprising. Being in love with God is not difficult. It's not difficult to be a Christian. How can I marry that with what I just said about 40 years and I'm still crying out for help? Well, how do you become friends with a person? Any ideas? Not Nazim. What? What was that? 
You talk to them. Yeah, you talk to them. What else? Wonderful. Thank you very much. That's it. You spend time with them. That's all you do. You spend time with somebody. And if that person is a good person, you naturally enjoy spending more time with them. Yeah? And if they're a lovely person, you will very likely grow to love them. And then all you want to do is to be with them more and more and love them more and love them more. And what do you do? You set yourself aside for them. Remember the definition of holiness? You set yourself aside for them. Do you think God is a good and lovely person? Yes, he's wonderful. Do you think he wants to spend time with you? Yes, he does. And he sets himself aside for you. And you know, a funny thing happens when you love somebody and you spend a lot of time with them. You become like them. You change. So if that person you love and who you set yourself aside to spend time with is God, then quite naturally, without any great striving on your part, you become like him. You see? That's how holiness works. You just spend time with him. And it just happens. Apple trees grow apples. They don't have to try. They just do it because that's what they're for. Do you know what you're for? Do you know what you're for? You are for bearing the image of God. That is your purpose. Every human being has that opportunity and that extraordinary privilege to be an image bearer of the eternal God. That's what he made us for. And that's what he put us here for. And he also provided the way to do it, which was to spend time with him. So I've dwelled on the heart, and I haven't talked very much about humility. But you can understand how humility and our need for God and our willingness to go to him all the time, saying, Lord, help me. That's humility. That's what it means to say, I need your help. So eventually, we never leave. All our lives and every breath, we're resting in his love for us and ours for him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, it is a beautiful thing to be a person that you dwell in. You do your work so thoroughly, Lord. Despite our so frequent mistakes, you come and you actually live in us. You don't just walk with us, you live in us. And we in you. And Lord, our prayer is that 
we won't give up. Lord, we won't despair when we make mistakes and we offend others. And those awful desires come bubbling up. The ones we thought that we had damped them down and got rid of. Lord, help us to spend more time with you, to be like you. And really, Lord, to know that it doesn't have to be effort from us. It just has to be faith that you will do your work as you promised to do. If only we will let you. Lord, put that desire in our hearts. And Lord, if we're in that situation of not yet desiring the desire, put the desire to have the desire in our hearts. Lord, change us, we pray, so that we might be more like Jesus and please you. Because we ask it in his name.